This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. If I sound like I have a cold, it's because I do. I apologize. There's only so much medicine I can shove into my face uh, before I have to just admit partial defeat. Uh, With me in the studio this week is Jackie Hedeman, a grant writer by day and an essayist by night. Her nonfiction has appeared in The Best American Travel Writing 2017, Entropy, Autostraddle and elsewhere. She used to blog about spies. Jackie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I wish so much that I had saved the one spy question I had gotten for you. Oh, no. It, it, we actually, we don't have a, like confirmation that it was a spy question, but it was somebody who was like, I, I've started to date this woman, and basically her job is such that she has to disappear for weeks on end and she can't tell me what she does. She's a spy. And we were like, she's definitely a spy. Also, I'm torn in that scenario. I think dump her immediately is the only way to go about it, because spies, spies are just... Spies count as cops. Exactly. That's that's where I draw the line. I, also, they lie for a living. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's only fun on TV. Yes, yeah. truly. Uh, so we have an array of exciting problems today, including one from someone who has apparently not heard of the word breakup. True. Like, oh, gosh. I uh, may have written something to that effect. I, I'm really excited <laughs> about that one. Um, that one is is really great, especially because I think I, I, I was looking for uh, a problem along those lines because it's somebody who's in uh, a, a like multiply tiered relationship. And I get a lot of questions where a lot of people write in and say, the answer to this person's problem is should be some version of like an open relationship or polyamory. And now it's good to be tackling people who are like, well, I'm trying that and I still have problems because life is still complicated. Yeah. People are people, sadly. People are people is is just where we're going to start from today. <laughs> and we're going to see if by the end of the day, we can't get somewhere slightly better. Like people are dogs. Yeah. Or cats, if you prefer. Yes. Would you read our first letter, please? I would love to. Thank you. Stalker or just lonely guy? Dear Prudence, I do a client-based medical service, and I had a physically disabled, elderly, and hard-of-hearing man come in for treatment. He's also surly, angry, paranoid, and talks to himself. Eventually, he was coming a lot. Then he proclaimed his love for me. I said he needed to not say stuff like that. Next time I saw him, he was crying because he said he loves me and should be able to say it. I fired him as a patient and referred him to a colleague. Since then, he's begged me to come back, showed up twice, called several times, and promised he would never say that stuff again, just wants me to treat him because my location is better for him and he likes my treatment style better. I'm mostly not afraid of him, though I found myself looking out the window a lot watching for him, and the times I did see him, I visually scanned his body for a weapon. I'm caught between feeling bad for the guy, relieved he's no longer a client, and bothered that he's harassing me. He came today, and I almost called the cops on him after I made him leave, and he parked himself on the bench outside. But it turns out he just couldn't walk and needed to rest. What should I do if he tries to contact me again? If I did call the cops on him, I feel like I would be doing so on the individual who has the most difficult life that I know. I also really wish he would stop pushing my boundaries. Help! Don't call the cops. Yeah, that that was where I came down on this one, too. Um, 
absolutely what he's doing is not okay, and you have every right to continue to enforce this boundary, and I think there's things you can do. But based on your description of him, I don't think he poses a real physical threat to you. Um, And I think calling the cops could only be bad for him. Exactly. I think he's, to me, clearly not dangerous, um, has been some problem with boundaries. I think the boundaries you've set are good. Referring him is great. Um, He doesn't seem to be escalating, if that's even the word to use to describe any of this. He just seems like he's not getting a message that you're trying to send. And, and I like I absolutely believe that this guy is an asshole. Totally. Um, I, and I believe that you have every right to continue to decline to see him. Um, but I think that the ways that you can enforce this better are, um, you know, maybe I don't know if you work in a building with colleagues or or even just if like there's a friend who might occasionally be able to hang out with you in your place of work. Um, but to like call somebody who's in your community in and say, I need a little help over the next couple of days or weeks. If this guy comes back again, would you be available to like stop by and help me de-escalate the situation and make sure that he leaves? I also feel like any colleagues or fellow practitioners this writer has may have experienced situations like this before and might be able to offer suggestions and resources. That's great. Yeah, you might also want to look up like the non-emergency helpline in your city um, because if you can get in touch with like mental health services and just ask for advice without saying like, here's the guy's name and address and an ambulance and a cop with a taser. Right. Um, they might be able to like plug you into some resources or recommend something. Because um, again, I want you to have help and support. You are right to not work with him. It would not be helpful for you to continue working with him. But, uh, you know. I mean, if it sounds like transportation is part of an issue for him, I think no matter where you're based, there are usually services, transportation services, um, for people that he could be connected with. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that that bit about, like, I almost called the cops on him because he parked himself on the bench, but it turned out he just couldn't walk. That, to me, makes it really clear, like, okay, if he can't even walk back to his car or to the bus stop, um, again, without diminishing the very real, like, lousiness of what he's done to you, you are not in danger from him physically. Um, I don't think it's likely that he's going to... And again, I don't want to say, like, he would never, ever do something unreasonable, like get a weapon or do something bonkers. I I just mean, um, I don't think there's a legitimate physical threat here um, for you, whereas, um, you know, there are often cases of people, especially with, like, disabilities or who have a hard time, like, hearing police commands being attacked um, and killed by the police. And I don't want that for him, even though he's an asshole. No, absolutely not. um, I think it's right that you're mostly not afraid of him. I also understand the kind of like scanning. Is he going to come back? That's really frustrating and awful. Um, So I think if he ever does to just say, I'm not talking to you, you need to leave. Hold that boundary firm. Don't get into an argument about anything else. Don't let the fact that you feel guilty for the fact that he's like old and alone get you drawn into a lot of interaction. Like just give him nothing. Um, And again, like call in somebody else who can come and help escort him off the premises. Um, Ask other people in your field for advice. What would you do in my situation? Um, Call that non-emergency line. Ask for more advice there. If you know anybody he either lives with or who helps provide him with other kinds of care, certainly give them a call and express some of your concerns. Um, But that should be the level that you come to in this. Um, You should not... Even if this means he does occasionally come by and you have to deal with that hassle, um, the answer there is just deal with it yourself and with friends, not call the cops because you're sick of him. 
Yeah, and I think just being firm and clear. You can be firm and clear without being mean or, I don't know, petty. Um, and I think keeping staying consistent, not just in your message, but in your tone might I don't know. This might not even become a problem. He might just give up, get the message. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it took a lot for him to get a mess, the message. I absolutely believe and agree that this guy is a total jerk um, and is perfectly happy to make somebody else miserable because he gets a little bit of attention. Um, and I do have a lot of sympathy for that. But um, I, I think it's really important to distinguish between situations where somebody else is making you really irritated or frustrated versus where somebody is posing a real threat to your safety. And right now he's not posing a real threat to your safety. So um, I think he's a stalker. I think he's just not a dangerous stalker. Um, or he's not a stalker who's capable of inflicting a lot of harm on you. So that is the good news because it's way worse to have a stalker who like has the ability to access weapons or could physically overpower you. But it's also frustrating because it means that um, you, you have limited options. It's all bad. It's not good to have any kind of a stalker. I don't want to <laughs> try to suggest that there's like a stalker <laughs> ranking where it's fine and you don't have a problem. I would echo something you said earlier, too, about having coworkers in the room when you have conversations. I feel like any interaction you have with them going forward, there should be a witness of some kind, mm -hmm. just for your own peace of mind, but also for his, frankly. Right. You know, if you work out of the same place every day, you know, I assume even if you don't have like traditional coworkers in a cubicle next to you, somebody else uses that building that you know and you're familiar with, at least in the kind of like saying hello over a cup of coffee. And, and I think that's the kind of relationship where you can absolutely disclose, like, I'm having trouble with this guy. Can you help me out a little bit? And people will be happy to lend their support to you. Yeah. So moving on to someone who has, I think, a slightly more serious uh, issue with somebody who is uh, definitely stepping over their boundaries in a really gendered, really inappropriate way. Uh, it, when I read this letter, I just was like, I, I was like filled with the sense memory of every weird guy who would yeah. like spend a lot of time trying to talk to me about how he didn't like his girlfriend. And I'd be like, I'm not inviting these confidences. I don't ask you questions about her. I don't know why you're telling me this. I hate this. But you're not picking up on any of my cues like, I guess that's tough. Sorry. Yes. So much rage about this particular situation. Yeah. So uh, I think it's my turn. I will read this one. The subject is, how do I set boundaries with my housemate? Dear Prudence, I'm a woman and I live in a split-level house with my girlfriend. We live in one half and another heterosexual couple lives in the other half. The man has a bad habit of coming over when he is drunk and asking for beer or cigarettes. Recently, it seemed like he has started doing this when he knows that I'm home alone. He tells me a lot how much he loves talking to me and how frustrated he is in his relationship and how much he really doesn't like his girlfriend. I have no idea how to approach the topic of please stop coming over when you're drunk because we share a space with the two of them and I worry that he's going to retaliate somehow. He's a really good housemate in every other way and I don't want him to make our lives more difficult because it seems like he's the sort of guy who might do that. I also don't want his girlfriend to find out and freak out at me because she seems like the jealous type. I'm usually good at setting boundaries, but it is difficult in such an intimate context, and I'm nervous about things getting more uncomfortable. You know what's great? Doors. Oh, man. <laughs> I, it was slightly unclear to me 
the arrangement of the house. So I, I wasn't sure if I should be picturing a sort of like duplex Kurt Russell Goldie Hawn situation or like there's a split level upstairs and downstairs and you can just wander into the other person's living space. That's what I was thinking. One of those walk in the front door, basement, upstairs, choose yeah. your poison. Because if it's a door situation, you you have the gift of the door. Yes. Which would be a great self-help book. <laughs> the gift of the door, right? Like you close it, you don't answer it. Um you lock it. That yeah. would be fabulous. But I want to kind of assume, like, if that's the case, letter writer, keep that door closed. Don't answer it. Um, but assuming that that's not the case, um, long term, I think you and your girlfriend need to look for another place to live and another set of roommates if you guys can't afford a place on your own. Because I don't think this is like a... Otherwise, they're like if they take out the trash regularly, otherwise that does not make up for this really creepy dynamic. Um, and so I think in the long run, whenever your lease is up, you two should be looking for a separate place um, and other people to to share a home with. Yeah, I this line, he really is a good housemate in every other way. I wondered what the threshold of good housemate is because this man sounds terrible. Yeah, there's some things that just like no amount of wiping down kitchen counters and remembering recycle and trash day is going to make up for. Right. And like stumbling over and saying like, can I have all your cigarettes and bitch about my relationship to you and kind of threateningly flirt with you? Oh my God. I mean, also, yeah, I feel like if setting boundaries, if your if your goal is not to move out immediately overnight or install a door and setting boundaries is your goal, I feel like st- Starting, if you don't want to do it all at once, not, you know, simultaneously, don't talk to me about your girlfriend and also don't show up drunk. Maybe starting with the I don't want to hear about your relationship and these complaints. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, It's hard under these circumstances. Right. And I think the fear here that I'm getting from this letter is a couple of things. And and I, I recognize that again of like, this is the kind of situation where a guy's making me really uncomfortable, but I know if I acknowledge what he's doing, he's going to get hurt and offended that I named something that's obvious to both of us and he's going to punish me. Mm-hmm. He's going to become more aggressive. He's going to blame me for naming the thing we both know he's doing um, and he's going to escalate. That's the fear. Um, and then in addition to that, like, threat of sexist behavior there's also his girlfriend as part of this heterosexual couple will blame us as like weird lesbian interlopers and say like you've created a problem in my relationship rather than saying my boyfriend is behaving badly so it's like this double whammy of like i know where my next two threats are going to come from if i try to draw a very reasonable boundary so with, again, the goal in mind of, I want you two to move out. I want to outline a sort of lower conflict option and a higher conflict option. Does that, by the way, seem like an accurate assessment? Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, everything about this is terrible. But the fact that this person has the sense that his girlfriend would not be open to sort of a second party call out makes me very sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um And this is just good advice for everybody. But, like, if you complain to a friend of yours or a roommate of yours a lot about your relationship and you're always initiating that conversation and you periodically say stuff like, oh, I love talking to you, and they sort of never reciprocate or initiate the conversation, allow this to be your light bulb moment. They hate it that you do that. You're making them incredibly uncomfortable and you need to stop. I... 
I mean, Lord knows there are people who can't pick up on unspoken cues. This man does not sound like one of them. He sounds like he's willfully ignoring the hints that you are very judiciously dropping. Yeah. So, uh, again, with the goal of move out rather than I hope we can go back to normal because these people do not have good boundaries um, and they will not start to respect yours absent, like, making demands of them. Um, if if you want to do the sort of like talking about it as little as possible, um, you just you you're you're out. You're permanently out of beer and cigarettes. Um, whenever he comes over, uh, if there's a door, close it. If there's not, you just say, "Oh, I'm fresh out." Just lie your head off. Um, hopefully, he's not the type to like go rifling through your fridge. Um, if you need to like temporarily not have beer in the house or get a mini fridge for your bedroom where you can close the door, um, whatever you need to do, but just like, oh, fresh out. Sorry. And if he's like, let's go on a 7-Eleven run, you make up an excuse. Oh, my mom's coming over. A boring, awful excuse. Oh, totally. Yeah. Usually I feel like most scenarios, in fact, most scenarios for all of these letters, I'm, you know, be direct, do what I say, not what I do. But this one, honestly, make up excuses Yep. You don't have time to talk. You're busy. You're starting a new hobby. Yep. It's just always, oh, I'm, I, I have to call my grandma. She's sick. Yep. Um, vague stuff that he can't really argue with and that is always just like, oh, sorry, maybe later. And then there's never a later. Yeah. Um, and that will buy you time um, until you can get out of your lease. If you're feeling a little ready to potentially like speak up for yourself, which again, I, I recommend trying. Um, and again, I don't I don't think you should have this conversation with him when he's like wasted and hovering in your kitchen. Yeah. Um, but just go ahead and say, hey, I, I actually don't want to talk about you and your relationship anymore. I wish you guys the best. But uh, just from experience, I know it, it, it never does any good when I get involved in other people's relationship problems. Um, and you can package that as a very sort of like generic policy. And you don't, again, because you're if you're worried about like, you think I'm being inappropriate with you, like <laughs> you can make it sound just very like, oh, just store policy, nothing to do with you. Um, but just let him know. And then if he tries to bring it up again, you can just say, sorry, I'm not comfortable having this conversation. Gotta go. Yeah. Yeah. Long term, though, get out of there. Yeah. Because, um, you know, that especially that line of, like, he's a good housemate, but he seems like the sort who would make my life more difficult if I tried to set a limit with him about him drunkenly complaining about his girlfriend to me. That's not a good housemate. That's a, like, temporarily pacified housemate. No. And oh, man, I just know this type of guy. He's like he's, you know, everything's fun and it's a joke. And I was just kidding. And then the slightest pushback. Mm -hmm. And it's just like you this, you that. Yeah. Trust your instincts. I think you are reading this guy correctly. If you have intuited, if I try to set a single limit with him, he will go from being like conspicuously friendly, but actually just super demanding to an aggressive jerk who will go out of his way to make me uncomfortable. Um you were reading that situation correctly. He is not a nice guy. You got to get out of there. So I wish you the best of luck. Totally fine if you want to take the low conflict route until you find another place. Oh, yeah. You do not have to have a heart to heart with this dude or his like weird girlfriend who would blame you for the fact that he's shitty. Um, but, you know, tell your girlfriend because you say 
You don't say a lot about her. You just kind of mention he saves this for when you're home alone. Tell her that he does this and it makes you uncomfortable. And that way she can at least kind of like help check in with you and support you and maybe even help you like fake a phone call from your mom. Also, I don't know. Maybe this is out of left field, but I don't know if there's like a landlord in this situation who might install a door. I'm really hung up on the door, I think. (laughs) Yeah, it would be so good if you had a door because then there could just always be like, oh, sorry, I like had headphones in and I was on an important call. Um, I'm sorry if you're the landlord. This is yeah, or right. I'm really sorry if they're the landlord. Uh-huh. Um, time to go. Yeah, time to go. It's time to go. You got to either have a robust busyness policy or you got to be able to get to a place where you are comfortable just saying, like, I'm not available to have this conversation with you. Um, and if you can't do that, then you got to find somebody else to live with. Yeah. Um, but man, oh man, in general, when somebody starts drunkenly complaining about their partner to you, yeah, it is the worst. It is. And usually it's happening in like a bar or party situation. To have it happen in your own home mm. is just like insult to injury. Right. It's like, well, you two should either talk about this or break up. I literally cannot help you at all because I am not your girlfriend. Yes. Like, you should not be telling me this. And I can't Irish goodbye this situation. You are in my living room. Yeah. Um, but good luck with that. That's yes. that's hard. Please update us. Let us know if you do try to set some limits, um, what his response is. Uh, and if you ultimately just have to get out of there, let us know. I hope you find other, um, you know, non-monsters to live with. <laughs> Agreed. All right. Uh, next letter is your turn. All right. Toxic parents. Dear Prudence, my relationship with my parents has always been strained. Despite going to a prestigious college and then medical school, which I hated, they act as if I were a huge disappointment. I struggled with depression and even attempted suicide once until I decided to move across the country. I'm in a much better place now. My husband and I had a baby this past year and went to visit my parents. My mom criticized everything I did for days, and in the middle of changing a diaper, I was fed up and gently raised my voice and told her to leave me alone. She cried for a few days and now refuses to talk to me. When I called home to apologize, my father said we were not welcome in their home anymore, that I was out of line and should get a divorce. They've always hated my husband because he does, quote, reprehensible, unquote, things like not say good morning, forgetting to offer them coffee, or eating all the bread. It's not the first time they've acted this way. I'm expected to make amends. But this was all before the baby. I don't have the patience to deal with their drama. My husband and I are entirely self-sufficient and do not rely on them for anything. Should I cut my toxic parents off? I was hoping that my baby would get to know both sides of grandparents, but I can't be an emotionally available and level-headed mother when my parents are in the picture. So sometimes they refer to something as the gift of clarity. Yeah. And that is one thing I think this letter writer has right now. Yeah. Yeah? No, I think maybe even in the process of typing this up and sending it out, I hope that some of what we were about to say has already occurred to you. (laughs) Right, because, like, the thing is, the question isn't, should I cut my toxic parents off? Your parents just cut you off. Yeah. They have estranged themselves from you. Yeah. Uh, So that's done. They don't seem like that great of a loss as well. Although I will say, if if you do want to have them in your child's life, then you certainly from my perspective, have the upper hand in this situation right now. Because I think it's ultimatum time. Like, I would like you to know my kid, potentially, if you actually do want them to know your kid. Um, These are the conditions under which you will know her or them. 
yeah. say the gender of the child. I mean, this is all like, I, again, I don't know. Uh, um, the letter writer does say that like they they've done stuff like this before. I don't know if it's gotten before to the extent of you're not allowed in our house anymore. Yeah. So it may be the sort of thing where like, yeah, they periodically threaten to cut me off, but uh, it never actually happens. So if that's the case and you think actually for this to stick, I would have to be the one to not pick up the phone and call, then I, I think this is a good opportunity for um, maybe doing a test estrangement. Yeah. Like a dry run estrangement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually was just um, answering a question this morning in the live chat from somebody who had just kind of gone through something similar with their parents. And one of the things that they were just acknowledging was like, even though my parents are like really awful people in a lot of ways, I, I'm devastated at the thought of like never eating my dad's jambalaya again or like never laughing at my mom's puns. And I do want to acknowledge that like rarely is someone at the point of estrangement that they're like, this is an unqualified good. I only feel fine about it. I'm not going to miss them at all. It is a big deal yeah. to um, end a relationship, especially a parental relationship. So I just want to acknowledge, like, it's hard. There's a reason we don't all just do it casually, like, in the way we would just say, like, well, I will never come back to this coffee shop because their coffee is bad. Um, it's hard. But um, it, it, in this situation, if, if you wanted to say, like, leaving that possibility open what would you say the letter writer needs to bear in mind, either in terms of saying, if this happens again, then I'll know for sure things aren't going to get better? Uh, like, how, how would you suggest the letter writer frame that? I think, I don't know. I, th I would have this person not do it in person, and I would have them not do it on the phone. I would have them type up an email that very clearly lays out, I would like you to know your grandchild, here are the conditions that have to be met going forward. Um, you know, we're not going to stay with you when we visit or, um, you know, you're not going to blah, blah, blah. I will hold up my end of the bargain by coming once a year or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, but I think... I think a situation in which you can get your thoughts out without being interrupted or talked over or put down is would be incredibly useful in this situation. Yeah, I think before you decide whether or not you want to commit to this estrangement, um, and, and, you know, bear in mind, too, not all estrangements last forever. It may be that you all need a couple of years um, and a couple of years from now they have, you know, experienced enough consequences for their mm -hmm. behavior or are willing to try again. Um, so, you know, even an estrangement is not always the final word. Um, but to ask yourself, if I had the kind of relationship with my parents where we never really talked about the ways in which they'd hurt me growing up, we never really talked about the fact that, like, their serious disapproval in some ways, like, contributed to my depression and, and, and suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. um, but once a year, we have a kind of strained visit where I let a lot of stuff go and just sort of say, like, I'll think about it. Sure. What an interesting suggestion. Just for the sake of my kid knowing their grandparents. What would I need to make that workable? And if you can kind of see your way through to that and you're like, yep, I could just kind of internally in my heart say my parents and I are not really close. We're not going to revisit the past, but we can have a vaguely friendly relationship for the sake of my grandchild um, and they will be kinder to the grandchild than they were to me and I will find you know a therapist or deal with this with my, my partner my friends and talk about this with people I can actually trust if you can see your way forward to doing that great 
figure out what you would need, ask for it, figure out what battles feel worth fighting and what stuff you're just going to say like, thanks, mom. I'll think about that a hundred times and then like go scream a little bit into a bag. Um, If the idea of that feels like, oh, God, my life stretches before me like a desert, um, it is definitely okay to say my parents have suggested an estrangement and I'm taking them up on it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if if any kind of relationship with them going forward would require you to make amends to them, don't make amends. Yeah, I feel like this letter writer is prioritizing all the right things currently um, and seems to have a really healthy perspective of the whole thing. It's not like, how can I please my parents? Because I know that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's like, here is a scenario that I want to happen, but... I, I think this seems like the kind of person who's open to checking in with this again later on down the line yeah. and seeing if it's still working. And I would suggest that. I, I, yeah, I think what I will ultimately say is this. If you can go to your parents and say, like, the terms that you have set for us having a relationship going forward are that I apologize to you for the way that you behaved during our last trip. I'm not able to do that. Um, I won't divorce my husband because he doesn't always offer you coffee. Um, And I'm not interested in having trips where you criticize me nonstop or react to calm requests for silence as if I have hurt you. Um, If you're willing and able to let this go, um, maybe we can both take a little time to cool down and revisit this in a couple of months. And if you're not, then let's let this one ride. You know, like let's let that estrangement play out. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, if, if that's made clear to them, they will, you know, back down. And then if they don't, I think you know that you have tried within reason to accommodate them. Oh, beyond. Yes. This yeah. is great. Um, I, my guess is that, you know, it's great to know both sets of your grandparents. Um, your baby is also going to be fine um, if they only know two friendly grandparents and not what sound like a pair of class A jerks. And, um, yeah, good luck. Yes. Good luck. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad that I get to read this next one. Oh, God. Because. Here we are. Oh, this one is just like, how do you not know what the answer to this is? (laughs) Um, I I think there's a little more to it than that, but I'm excited to um, uh, uh, read this one. So the subject is removing the third, which, by the way, I just want to say really says something about your attitude towards this person. No, I mean, this is another letter Where I think the answer is here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, dear Prudence, my partner and I, we're both lesbians, decided that we wanted to give polyamory a try a couple of years ago. We meet a nice girl, T, and quickly become a throuple. Fast forward a few years, and I no longer like her. She proves to be not so nice and acts more like a child than an adult in a committed relationship. My original partner agrees, and we want to remove T from the relationship and become monogamous again. We also want to move to Poland, since my partner got a job offer there. The issue is, she mentioned this to T as well, and now T is super excited about the move and the three of us making a life together there. She's so in love with us, while I can barely stand her anymore. How do we remove her from our relationship, our house, and our lives? The timing for this is perfect. You're moving to Poland. I mean, say it before you get on the plane. <laughs> That's the thing. Dump her, but do it soon. Yeah. Before she quits her job, packs her bags, arranges her life because she's going to Poland with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm kind of confused why the letter writer seems to not remember that breaking up still 
It's still a thing if you're in a relationship with more than one person. It's the same thing. You tell someone, we're not in a relationship anymore. Right. Exactly. And I mean, if part of the concern is that you don't have a quote unquote good reason, A, you don't need one. But B, I mean, you don't have to have the reason B. Actually, you're not so nice and you're very childish. It can be the least judgmental version of the truth, whatever yeah. that is. I, I mean, I believe that T is is probably a lot, but I also feel like uh, the letter writer and her original partner both seem to be at the very least like weirdly passive like if you two have both had a conversation where you agree we don't want to be with her anymore we want to be monogamous and we want to move to poland together as a monogamous couple um why you have then just like let her persist in the belief that you're all going together feels passive to the point of cruelty like, it's absolutely unkind that you both know you're not going to take her with you. And you're just letting her say, like, it's going to be so great. Can't wait to learn Polish. I really want to try this restaurant. Like, let's find out what the local LGBT centers are in whatever city we're moving to. Like, you two need to sit her down and break up with her. I think together, like, I don't yeah. think you should make her go through two individual breakups. I'm not 100% sure on what the, like, thruple etiquette is here, but... You've already made the decision. Rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah. This seems to be something where you and your original partner are on the same page. So I see no reason not to do it together. Yeah. And I just want to add, totally fine to not want to be with someone anymore. Totally fine to want to go back to being in a monogamous relationship. Totally fine that you and your first partner feel more close to one another than somebody you started seeing together later on. But this language of, like, removing the third... And my original partner and, like, removing her from our lives um, and, and referring to her as kind of childlike makes it seem like for at least a big portion of this relationship, you have thought of this person as, like, a toy that the two of you picked up. And then, like, once you decided you didn't like her, instead of, like, talking about it or saying this bothers me when you do it, kind of like talking about her behind her back but not actually being willing to engage in conflict with her, which I think is a sign of genuine respect and care. Yeah. And then just sort of saying, like, now we need to erase her. And I, I just I think it's good that maybe you guys are going to go back to being monogamous because I, I think the attitude you two take towards people who aren't part of your kind of primary original relationship is a little, um, like, instrumentalizing. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there would not be a problem if she— if. This other person also viewed herself as the toy that you guys picked up. Delightful. But she clearly doesn't. She clearly sees herself as an equal partner. Yeah. And, and like, um, yeah, I, I just think that that's a sort of um, bad way to think of it. And again, that's not to say that you can't have multiple relationships where you kind of acknowledge there are different levels of commitment yeah. um, or, or um, uh, intensity. That's fine. Um, but if you're coming at it from, like, Apparently she's been living with you um, and apparently she understands herself to be kind of like an equal member of this relationship. But you two have been like siloing yourselves off and talking shit about her. Um, that's a really bad way to go about being a thruple. And if you two ever do decide to open up your relationship again, I hope you seriously reconsider how you treat other people. Yes. So, you know, the only other thing here that strikes me is this, uh, you know, 
I, I wonder a little if the letter writer is kind of like, I think my partner agrees with me, but I'm the one with the real problem. And I think if my partner were left to her own devices, she might just kind of say what I want to hear when she's with me, say what T wants to hear when she's with T, and won't actually back me up in the event of an attempt to break up. That's a really good point. Right? Like, I, I'm not 100% sure, but that seems like it could be. The door's open in my mind. Yes. yes. So I think in that case... Prepare yourself for the possibility that your partner is doing a little bit of making you happy when she's with you and making tea happy when she's with tea, in which case, you know, the first conversation you have is with the partner you don't want to dump and say, I don't want to be with tea anymore. Either you need to decide I'd be willing to move to Poland together, but I really want to break up with her first, or I would not be willing to move to Poland with you uh, unless we break up with tea first. I get a read from her on what she is and isn't willing to do. And if she's like, no, you're right, you're right. We just got to, you know, knuckle down and do it. Then you go do it. And if she gives you a kind of waffly answer, then you need to figure out, yeah, is this a deal breaker for me? I also, I mean, since this does sound, if they are on the same page and they are dealing with this passivity and sort of dumping this poor tea, um, I think maybe rehearsing the conversation might be useful so you don't wind up inviting her to Poland as a platonic friend. Right. I could easily see that happening. Right. And just, again, you know, be honest and just say, like, it's not working out. The two of us have decided to become monogamous again. And so we're ending this relationship. And you also need to figure out if she lives with you, I don't know if she pays rent or if you all have signed any kind of lease agreement, but find out, you know, if you want to kick her out of the house, you need to make sure that you know in advance what are her legal rights as a tenant. Um, if you live in a state where she needs at least 30 days written notice, you give her that 30 days written notice. Like, don't just say, like, we're dumping you and we hope you'll be so crushed that you'll crawl away into the night. Like, give her her legal rights when it comes to finding new housing. This is, yeah, I mean, an even greater reason to do this sooner rather than later. Hopefully you've already done it. Yeah. And and so just like language, like removing her, I think is, is you, you should reevaluate. I'm not saying you have to like her or keep dating her. You're well within your rights to dump her. Um, but maybe investigate why over the last couple of years that you want to just fast forward through instead of having conflict with her or disagreeing or saying, I don't like the way that you're acting. Um, you apparently just sort of were like, I'll never say anything and then surprise dump her before, you know, me and my p- other partner moved to Poland. Like, that's, uh, that's mean. I would, mean. I would use this as a learning opportunity if you ever do go back to polyamory in the future. Exa- yeah, and even if you don't, even if you right. just need to figure out how you talk to friends and your girlfriend better, this will I hopefully prove um, uh, to be a good learning thing. Sorry, I'm still like hopped up on cold medicine. so I feel that. Just learn. I've got uh, the caffeine I had before this just hit me. So I'm like, whoo, okay. Yeah. Oh, good. Because this next letter feels really sad. And I also <sighs> feel a little bit at a loss. So maybe we can use some of that energy to figure out some of their options. Yeah. This helpfully is called accidents and panic attacks, which thank you, caffeine. I might have one of those on my own pretty soon. Okay. Dear Prudence, my brother and sister in law are in another state and have two kids, both under seven. We love them, but over the past few years, we've had to limit our time with them. Both kids have daily accidents. 
They've taken the kids to a urologist who put them on medication, which seems to have slightly improved the urination accidents, but now they have the other kind. And the kids don't respect personal space. I've repeatedly asked the younger one not to grab my breasts. She just looks at me confused, as it, and if the parents notice, they shrug and say, kids don't understand boundaries. They always want us to come over for dinner, but every time we've tried, we have panic attacks because of the chaos, because the house is never picked up and it smells like urine. They don't mind it. So we limit our time with them, but then they tell us how sad they are that we can't spend more time with them. It's affecting our relationship with them to the point that I now wonder if we need to be honest with them. Do we tell them that the way they live causes us panic attacks? And if so, how to phrase it? We aren't parents, so we don't want it to seem like we're judging their parenting. I mean, I'm not a parent either, but. I think there's something up with this mode of parenting that just shrugs and says kids don't understand boundaries when it's your responsibility to model boundaries. Yeah, and that their only response to, like, so many daily accidents that the whole house smells like urine is just seeing a urologist and not also, like, a pediatrician and a behavioral specialist and a therapist to make sure that there's not some Like, usually... Yeah. I think when it comes to accidents and kids, like you say both under seven, which makes me think at least one of them is close to seven. Otherwise, you would have said like other, under five or <laughs> under three. Very like, specific number. Yeah. Like that does seem like an age where, uh, again, absent some other diagnosis, most kids are not having daily accidents. So I worry that they're just only addressing like the part of the body that creates urine <laughs> yes. and not other underlying causes. So I think you're you're right to be concerned. Um, c- you know, clearly there's something going on where the parents are either feeling overwhelmed yeah. and not getting the help that they need or else are like borderline neglectful or potentially even abusive. Yeah, I just don't. I'm with you. I mean, the best case scenario is not super great yeah. here. And the worst case scenario is incredibly dark. Um Either way, I feel like you're well within your right to not go over there. But I wonder, I wonder. Yeah. So I would say the focus really needs to be on the well-being of the kids. And that's not to say that, like, from another state, you need to become your brother's watchdog Mm -hmm. because there's just going to be a limit to how much you can observe. But I do think um, there's a real opportunity for you to say to your brother, um, not just like, oh, we're kind of busy, but to say, like, I'm really concerned. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to say because oftentimes when you say that, especially to a sibling, their first response is to get defensive. So uh, I I hope you can find a way to say it that makes it really clear. I love you. Um, I know that raising two young kids is really challenging, especially when there's medical issues. Um, I I know that you are both trying very hard. I assume that they're both trying very hard. Yeah. but I'm also really concerned about what I've seen. I haven't seen that in houses of other people with children. I'm not saying this to make you feel like you're bad parents or to suggest that I, I, I'm dismissing you. But um, I, I, I'm really worried about your kid's well-being. And I'm worried that a urologist alone is not helpful. And maybe before you have that conversation with them, talk to uh, your own doctor and say, like, if if you heard this in a patient, what would your concerns be? What should I be mindful of as I have this conversation with them? If you know any of your brother's friends, um, maybe check in with them and say, like, I, I'm not trying to 
spread gossip here or talk about my brother behind his back, but I've seen some things that have concerned me. Have you noticed anything when you go over to the house? Um, and again, like use your own judgment as you do this. So you're not just like calling up people you barely know and saying like, do you think my brother's a bad dad? But, um, you know, prepare, like do as much background research as you can before you go into this conversation. Um, and just be really straightforward. Say like one of the reasons we don't spend as much time with you is that we find the condition of your house really distressing. And I can't imagine what it's like to live under those conditions. And, and maybe suggest like we would love to help uh, pay for somebody to come out and clean the house or like do a bunch of laundry for the kids. Would you be, again, that can be hard to say. Your brother might be like, how dare you? I don't need charity, but. No, I agree. I mean, I came up with exactly the same suggestion. I think like everything else aside, you know, you have the conversation, you determine this is not the darkest timeline or, you know, it is, but it's out of your hands. I think if it's within your means, offering to hire them a cleaner is perfectly reasonable. Yeah. And like a very generous and, you know, kind spirited thing. Yeah. And and again, I understand that there's also that fear of like, I don't have kids. Um, but I, I'll just tell you, like, this raises a number of alarm bells for me. And I also don't have kids, uh, but I have been around enough people with kids to know that this falls into the category of cause for follow-up conversations. Yeah, this isn't Legos on the floor. Right, right. This is not your garden variety, overworked parents um, who could use a little help around the edges. Yeah. There's there's a missing stair in here somewhere. Yeah. Um, and to whatever extent you can be helpful um, in either providing support or identifying if one or both of them is doing something harmful to the kids, especially like, I don't know how young the younger one is. It could be like a two-year-old. Right. But if we're talking like a five-year-old or a six-year-old, um, you know, just again, like clutching out for physical contact with other adults, not being able, again, like some of this is close to standard kid behavior and totally. some of it is like, I worry what this kid is picking up. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of kids will go straight for the boobs. Sure. But the response from parents generally is, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, we talked about this. Right. We, you know, ask before we touch people's bodies. Right. And, and and especially because you have told the child not to do it multiple times and it's still happening. Again, I don't want to jump immediately to, no. you know, your brother or, or his wife or both of them are sexually abusing the kids. No. But... I want you to put that on your radar. Mm -hmm. Again, not at like 25% likelihood, but put it on the radar that somebody, probably somebody close to that kid, is communicating something very weird about physical boundaries in other people's bodies. Yeah. There could be other explanations for it. I don't want you to go to a, like immediately like this is an emergency. I need to call the cops. My my brother and his, his wife are monsters. But yeah. And I think for the question of sort of can we be in their house or not, I think, you know, next time you go visit, drop in briefly to sort of check out the situation, but then, like, take them to the park or, like, take them to a place with an indoor play structure. Yep. You don't have to hang out in their house the entire time you spend time with them. Yeah. And, and this is definitely one of those things where it's important to speak kindly. Yeah. And with discretion. I don't I don't think that you should say your house smells like a charnel pit and it no. disgusts me. No. But speaking honestly about the problem is a good idea, I think. Yeah. No. And again, it doesn't have to be like your house reeks and it gives me panic attacks. It could be 
I've been working on identifying the triggers for my panic attacks. These are the triggers. Yeah. And and I do think it's helpful to say, like, it's not a case of, like, it's a little tricky to deal with. I've been to other people's houses where they have little kids and I'm perfectly capable of spending time there. This is serious enough that I I feel unwell in your home. Yeah. Um, And I don't say that to judge or or berate you, but I need you to know how serious it is. Yeah. I, I want to not downplay it because I'm and embarrassed. And speaking of not downplaying things because we get embarrassed, it's time for a kind of letter I get a lot and I wish I never got, which falls under the umbrella of somebody in my life is trying to marry uh, somebody who has, you know, been convicted of sexual assault and their response to it has been basically... It's over. It's in the past. We never talk about it. Nobody else should have any feelings about it. The best response is for us all collectively to say the past is dead and move on and hang out. Um, And that's just never going to be my advice. No. (sighs) So the subject is sister's fiance is a registered sex offender. Dear Prudence, my sister has made a lot of choices in the last few years that my family has struggled with. After surprising us all with an unexpected divorce, she's now engaged to a man twice her age who's in prison for an inappropriate relationship with a student of his who was also half his age at the time. My sister met him at church before he went to prison, and he says that he's turned his life around and is heartbroken for his past transgressions. They plan to marry this fall. The entire situation has been tough for our family, but I've worked hard to support her and love her through everything, even though she knows I don't necessarily agree with her decisions. The issue is how to handle this when her fiancé gets out of prison and they get married. My husband and I live across the country and only come home a few times a year, but we have a young daughter that we're not comfortable being around a registered sex offender. I know that my sister believes him to be a good guy, and I don't want to be unreasonable but I feel like I want him to be around my daughter as little as possible and absolutely never around her without me present. My sister casually mentioned that next year they could join us for our yearly family vacation and my heart stopped. The thought of being under the same roof with that man scares me. Am I being irrational or is this a valid concern? I'm a Christian and I do believe that God can change people and that everyone deserves forgiveness, but his past behavior landed him in jail and that seems severe enough for me to create boundaries. If my feelings are valid, how do I address this without hurting my incredibly sensitive sister? Your feelings are valid. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I, I mean, am I being irrational or is this a valid concern? You're not being irrational. I think it's perfectly rational to not want to have a registered sex offender under the same roof as your daughter. I like that this writer, you know, mentions the the practice of supporting and loving her sister through everything, which is, I'm glad that you love your sister through everything. It sounds like that has been important for her. But I feel like supporting someone through things can look different depending on the situation. It doesn't have to just look like, you got this. Like, you go, girl. Um, I feel like in this case, it might be sort of, you know, telling some hard truths, some firm boundaries. Yeah. And I think I would like to speak a little bit to the religious angle here. And so I understand, letter writer, that you are also a Christian and that matters of redemption and uh, change and becoming a new creation are meaningful to you. And I want to say, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't think you have to apologize for that. Um, I think this falls under the category of, of spiritual abuse. 
um, where sin, I think what you would rightly call sin in this instance, um, gets minimized and glossed over um, and somebody can misappropriate spiritual language of transformation, of redemption in Christ, of becoming a new creation, um, in order to avoid experiencing consequences for that sin. So, uh, you know, think of James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Um, I, I think that's kind of the, the scripture that should be guiding you at this point. If there's real redemption here, um, if he is truly and heartily sorry for the harm that he has caused young people in the past, and his goal is to live as a new creation, to constantly strive to make up for that, uh, not in the sense of I must always answer for my past self, but in the sense of I want my life to demonstrate my new faith, um, he should, in fact, welcome clarity, questions, concerns, and boundaries. So that should, in fact, be a sign that there's real internal transformation. Uh, and I think that's the way to approach this with your sister and with the rest of your family, which is not I'm attempting to be punitive or legalistic, um, but that I am looking for signs, for outward signs of an inward condition of grace and salvation. Um, and that's just going to be real helpful as you kind of try to untangle uh, real spirituality from spiritual abuse. Um, and so say, I have real concerns about um, whether or not a person who has sexually harmed children, um, even if they are able to turn their lives around, um, should simply be restored to perfect faith and perfect trust around children. Um, so for me, one sign that he is really um, owning up to what he did and trying to make amends is that he would say, of course I understand your concerns. I would never want you to feel like I was pressuring you to leave me around children in order to make me feel um, truly forgiven. Um, so you know, if that energy is not there, um, if in fact both he and your sister are suggesting what everyone needs to do is actually put him around a ton of kids to prove that, um, you know, this is just totally gone and he gets to do whatever he wants, that's a sign that he's trying to evade responsibility. So I would just really hold on to that. I think that's going to be a really important um, thing for you to get to stick to and to just say, um, I have a lot of concerns here. I'm really worried um, that he is, in fact, abusing the language of forgiveness and redemption to just get away with something. Um, and I want to offer my trust slowly with reservations and after seeing a lot of evidence that there's been real change in his life. And if I don't see that, I'm going to hold my boundaries really, really firmly. That doesn't mean I'm saying he should go back to jail for 100 years. That doesn't mean I'm saying he should go to hell. That doesn't mean I'm saying that you're a bad person. Um, that means that I am, you know, acting with integrity, honoring my own family's boundaries. Um, and, and, you know, bearing in mind, again, it is better for someone to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around his neck than he should cause one of the children to stumble. You know, bring the Bible to play here, right? Like, come out with some scriptural guns of blazing, um, because that's just going to, I think, help you feel like they don't own the language of your religion, which is, but forgiveness is so good. Um, and it can be real clear that you're saying, I'm not trying to make a claim about his like salvific condition. <laughs> I'm trying to make a claim about whether or not I feel comfortable with him in a room with my daughter. 
Um, so just, you know, finally, brothers, whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is honest, like, that's what I'm going to be pursuing here. What he said. <laughs> yeah. I feel like also all of these things put you in a better position to be able to, as you put it, support your sister. Because if you feel confident in what in the decision you've made, if you feel that you're coming at it from a Christian perspective, and if you are in an environment, say it's on some future family vacation where you're not all staying in the same place and you're not all spending time together, you have one less concern and you're in a much better place to be the sister you clearly want to be to her. Yeah. And I'll just say this. If she is not prepared to have difficult conversations, she is not prepared to marry a sex offender. Yeah. A, sorry, a registered sex offender. <laughs> um, and so I think it's good to not want to go out of your way to be cruel to her, but accept that she will probably have her feelings hurt if her boundary is no one can ever ask my fiance about the sexual crime he committed. Yeah, that's a recipe for probably not speaking to a lot of people ever again. Yeah. So I think, again, the thing to say to her is I have a lot of reservations here. I, I, I'm not sure that the trust that you place in him is justified yet. Um, and I'm not saying that because I want to berate you or bring you down. Um, but I, I think if you're going to be prepared to, you know, make this man your partner in life, you will need to prepare yourself for a lot of very difficult personal conversations. And if what you want is to never have those conversations, you need to marry somebody else. And I'll just end with, again, you know, another guiding verse is going to need to be Isaiah 520. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. Uh, that's, again, just like kill him with Bible verses of just like, I am not going to let you say that um, pretending bad things don't happen or saying like abusing the language of redemption uh, saying like anybody can just say, whoops a daisy, I didn't sexually assault a child is such a misuse and abuse of scripture um, and, and give it no quarter in your home. Also, I mean, you say you're worried about hurting your sister. And I feel like the true sort of scenario is offending your sister. Yes, exactly. It's not real hurt. <laughs> no. She's fine. Yes, yeah. she'll be fine. In fact, she'll probably be better than ever. You just need to, you know, draw a firm boundary, whip out the Bible verses, and call it a day. Yeah, yeah. So good luck with that. Yeah. Uh -huh. Hold that boundary. My guess is... Um, He's not going to, like, actually have a good response that's like, of course, you're right. I understand that while, uh, you know, redemption in one sense is possible for me, in other ways, I will have to live with the consequences of my actions for the rest of my life. And that is fair and just. I accept that you don't trust me around your children. I respect it. I will never try to be around them. Um, I, I will be very surprised if that is his response. It would be wonderful if it were. Oh, totally. I hope someday it is. My guess is that's not where he's at right now. No. Woo! All right. Next letter is all you. All right. Reluctantly sobering up. Dear Prudence, my longtime friend and on-again, off-again partner recently got sober from her abuse of prescription medications and marijuana. She also quit alcohol but was never more than a glass a week drinker. I broke off our engagement this fall after months of erratic and sometimes frightening behavior. She quickly identified her substance use as a major issue and went into treatment. I'm so happy for her as she seems much more stable, sure of herself, and in control than she was in the 17 years that I've known her. 
I supported her through this time period, and we've remained in each other's lives as sometimes more than friends. This is confusing for both of us. Recently, she said that in order for us to continue seeing each other, either as friends or with the intention of getting back together, I too would need to give up drinking and using marijuana, both of which I do very irregularly but quite enjoy when I do indulge. While I'm happy to refrain from using anything while I'm around her, I'm resentful that I'm being given an ultimatum to get sober when I don't actually have an issue with substances. This is all further clouded by the limbo of our relationship status. While she's made it clear that she wants us to be together, I don't know if I do. I'm watching to see how her very new recovery plays out in terms of her behavior. She's used ultimatums in the past as a way to control my decisions and actions, and I'm wary of allowing that to make its way back into our relationship. Is this a reasonable request or overly controlling? Does your answer to that change based on whether we're friends versus partners? So I think I kind of went on a long scriptural monologue in the last letter. So why don't you take the lead on this one? Absolutely. Um, I feel like maybe in their heart of hearts, the letter writer knows the answer to this, which is they need to clarify their relationship. And I myself am leaning towards friends only stop hooking up. Um, It seems like clarity and consistency is what your on-again, off-again partner needs at this point in her life. And it seems like clarity and consistency is what you need regarding this relationship status. So if you're going to remain friends, remain friends. Um, I do think my own answer to the question of whether it's reasonable to ask you to give up smoking and drinking does change whether you're in a relationship or not. I think for me, if you are just friends, you're within your right to continue to smoke and drink if you're not around her. I think you need to respect her boundaries and what she needs for her sobriety, but I think she equally needs to respect that you are your own agent. Yeah, I don't think that um, your like counteroffer is unreasonable, which is I don't drink or use very often, yeah. um, and I would never do it around you, but... Um, you know, different things work for different people. And for somebody else to say, like, as a newly sober person, I can't be in a relationship with somebody who is not also, like, either abstinent from substances or or sober themselves strikes me as a reasonable boundary. The fact that she's saying, I need you to do this even if we're going to be friends, yeah, I think this probably falls under the category of unreasonable ultimatums. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you know... I get that you two have known one another for 17 years and you've been really close and there's a kind of like interesting sort of shift of like, well, we're we're not engaged anymore, but I don't think of her as my ex-fiance so much as my longtime friend. Yeah. You know, I think you two have been maybe locked into a kind of unhealthy, uh, overly dependent relationship for a little while, which is evidenced in the like ultimatums. We're confusingly hooking up despite breaking off our engagement. And I think rather than saying, like, we need to cut each other out from one another's lives forever, right? it might just be a good time to say, um, that's not uh, a request I'm able to fulfill. I also respect that you really need to just pursue your recovery right now. Yeah. Um, and so I think we should just agree to give each other a lot of space for the next, like, six months to a year. Yeah. Um. And and not with like, and maybe we'll hook up at the end of it and possibly get back together. But just like, I'd love to be your friend in the long term. I think we both have a lot of stuff we need to unlearn about how we relate to each other. And um, I think distance is good. So let's agree to just try something new and not be in one another's lives for a little while without saying, I hate you. I'm furious. You're awful. Right. Um, 
and and see how we feel. And I think either, you know, in six months or a year, you can kind of check back in and she'll feel a little more secure in her own recovery and say, like, I am glad I got a little distance from that. We can be like pals, but but um, I have different tools for, you know, affirming my own recovery that don't require me to ask my friends never to smoke weed. Um, or, you know, you'll realize that was actually a more unhealthy relationship than we were aware of. And it's actually really good that we're not close. Yeah. I feel like reading this, I I could be just reading way too much into it, but I sense that these are two people who really want to be in each other's lives and there hasn't really been like a clear-cut mechanism for how that should be, um, given the fact that there's been sort of substance abuse issues and this on-again, off-again thing and the writer sort of waiting to see how things shake out and the partner hopefully maybe wanting to get back together, but also we just have the letter writer's word on that. So I agree. I think like a period of time where you agree that you are not going to abandon each other, but that it is just going to be a platonic friendship would be very clarifying. Yeah. And yeah, I just think like you're not sure that you want to get back together and she kind of does. And she also wants you to stop using any substances and you really don't. That to me is not a great foundation for like a good non-sexual friendship, which you apparently (laughs) haven't been able to establish previously. Like, I think you both don't have a track record of saying kind of like either definitively we're going to be together and work on this or we are actually broken up. And so that means we don't call each other like every other day um, or text as soon as something comes up and like lean on each other for primary emotional support. So I think... You're not sure you want to be in a relationship with her. You know she wants to be in a relationship with you. The conditions under which she wants to be in a relationship with you are ones that you find unreasonable. All signs point to good luck. Be well. Yeah. Um, We are broken up. Let's really let that breakup ride. Let's not talk for a while. Yes. Yeah. You know, so... Without making a judgment call one way or the other about whether or not she has a reasonable request from a partner, I would absolutely agree that that is too much to ask of a friend. You are well within your rights to decline. Um, But again, you don't have to say like you're, you know, she's she's newly sober. She's going through a lot. Um, it, It makes sense that she's sometimes saying or suggesting kind of out there stuff. Um, She has very recently recovered some what sounds like very erratic, you know, drug or alcohol induced behavior. Give her give her that time and space. Um, and you've also been involved in this unhealthy relationship dynamic for a while. And you deserve a little time and space to kind of investigate. What was I getting out of that? Um, did I, I Do I identify any patterns that I'd like to change um, in the future? What do I want from a relationship? Um, and I think you both deserve that. And neither one of you are bad people for it. But you just both sound like you're not actually able to be helpful to each other right now, even though you might both wish each other well. Yeah. Yeah. Man, lots of uh, lots of breakups today. So much. Um, I mean, basically, don't share an Airbnb with any of these people you're writing in about yeah. until you give it a good long thought. Yeah. Um, I I, I kind of wish we could do a housing share where we could like <laughs> maybe move T in with the like weird heterosexual couple because she actually sounds kind of like tough herself. So maybe they could all be tricky with each other. And yes, oh god, the crossover episode. Nobody actually, no, wanted. I or take deserved. that back. I don't want to inflict any more <laughs> lesbians on that awful heterosexual couple who sound like they are just kind of weird to gay women in general. So yeah, maybe she can move in with. Uh, I don't know. 
Maybe no one. Maybe no she can one. live alone. Maybe she need a great <laughs> studio. Um, I wish everyone who wrote in or was written in about, uh, at a bare minimum, you know, safety and the opportunity for solitude and reflection and hopefully uh, not going out of their way to cause any more harm. Yeah. And a Glade plug-in, if necessary. And a Glade plug-in. And now I'm thinking of those, like, weird old Febreze commercials. Do you remember that where they would, like, kidnap people and take them to very upsetting places? And That's the subtext to this podcast. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's just like, this was such an upsetting ad campaign. It was like, why do you want me to think of you as this company that abducts people and puts them in a distressing situation? Between that and the old Kool-Aid commercial, it really is just like it was not a safe time to be an actor on. Yeah. And there was also like some pizza company that did that, too, where they would like kidnap somebody and then like take them to a pizza testing facility. And then they'd like <laughs> knock the walls and they'd be like, we're in a field. These are the tomatoes. And it was just I, I don't know. Any kind of advertising that like requires like kidnapping somebody and messing with their idea of reality is just one that I think we need to leave behind with the like sexy cheeseburger ads of the early 2000s. Oh, 100%. Leave that leave that in the past. Um Jackie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Daniel. I feel like it cured my colds. I've also been cured of any number of things. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. I hope you are able to blog about spies again as soon as you want or to your heart's content. That's the dream. I'm currently working on a memoir about this very issue. Ooh, really? About spies? <laughs> yes. I've been very into the Cambridge spies since uh, I almost said childhood. No, that's true. I'll stand with that. Um, so I'm working on a memoir that's sort of like two parallel narratives, my obsession with the Cambridge Spies, dawning queer sexuality. Very cool. Awesome. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I hope we get to have you back on the show maybe after the memoir comes out and we can talk a little bit more about it. I would love to come back. Thank you so much. Awesome. Have a great day. <laughs> you too. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton and production assistance by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 